Welcome to Working for Women, the independent women's forum podcast, where we are changing the conversation about women and public policy for the better. Hello, I'm Hadley Heath Manning, Director of Health Policy at the Independent Women's Forum. Today, I'm here with Grace Marie Turner, President of the Galen Institute, and we're going to be discussing an upcoming Supreme Court case called King versus Burwell. Grace Marie, thank you so much for joining me. Hadley, it's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you. Great. First of all, um, maybe you can tell our listeners a little bit more about yourself and your work and about the Galen Institute. Well, first of all, Hadley, I'm really delighted always to be working with you in the Independent Women's Forum. The Galen Institute, which I founded in 1995, is a think tank that is devoted exclusively to health policy. And we, in particular, advance ideas to put doctors and patients back in charge of healthcare decisions and advance a free market in the health sector. People can visit us on our website at galen.org to learn a lot more about what we do and our issues. Great. Um, so this Supreme Court case, King versus Burwell, I've actually seen some polling that suggests that a lot of people haven't even heard anything about this case. So um, maybe to get started, could you briefly explain what the case is, what it's about, and why it's so important? Absolutely. I'm sure that most people are aware of the challenge before the Supreme Court in 2012, two years ago, where there were real constitutional challenges to the law, whether or not the individual mandate was constitutional, whether or not the states could be coerced into expanding Medicaid. And the Supreme Court upheld those two provisions of the law. But a third challenge, this the other challenges, but, but the third challenge we're going to be hearing now is about the subsidies that are flowing through the majority of states that opted for the federal government to run their exchanges and whether or not those subsidies are legal. If you'll recall, the states had an option of whether or not to set up their own exchange. The exchanges are one of, they do a number of things, but they are the mechanism through which subsidies are allocated from the federal government to insurance companies on behalf of consumers who sign up. Most people are familiar with this through the somewhat infamous healthcare.gov website. That's the federal government's website that authorizes people to sign up for the, for coverage through, through these federal exchanges. 37 states currently are, are operating under the federal exchange mechanism. But the problem is that the law does not allow subsidies to flow through these federal exchanges. It says a number of times that the states have to set up their exchanges under Section 1311 of the law, and if they do, then their citizens will be eligible for subsidies for their health insurance. The fallback exchange, the federal government's exchange, doesn't authorize those subsidies. Well, the Internal Revenue Service in 2012, when it saw that only a handful of states were setting up exchanges, said, well, we're just going to allow subsidies to flow through the federal exchanges. Not legal. And so cases have been making their way through the courts. And the Supreme Court has agreed to hear 
this important challenge to the law, and the oral arguments are going to be on March the 4th. There are a lot of implications for this, but the most important thing is whether or not an administrative agency of the federal government can change a law duly enacted by Congress, albeit with only Democratic votes, but it was enacted by Congress, signed by the president, and can the Internal Revenue Service interpret that in a way that allows federal funds to be spent in a way that Congress did not authorize? That's really what is at issue here. It's a, it's a, it's a statutory interpretation issue, not the constitutional issues that were before the court in 2012. Okay, so the people who have brought this case, the petitioners, what exactly are they asking that the Supreme Court do, and why are they asking this? One of the one of the things that states would be protected from if their state did not set up its exchange is a lot of the mandate penalties in Obamacare. We all know that there is a requirement that every individual has to purchase coverage, and there are fines if you don't, up to uh, 1% this year, going up to 2.5% of your income, um, or about $700 a year per individual. There are also fines and penalties on employers if they don't provide insurance to their employees that's affordable, and or if any of their employees go to the federal exchanges for subsidized coverage, then employers also face substantial penalties. But if a state doesn't set up its own exchange, they are not subject to those penalties. So the state can protect itself from these penalties and its, its citizens and employers if they don't set up an exchange. Yes, it's a trade-off, but one that some states certainly decided was worth it. So if the petitioners are saying, you know, the law never authorized these subsidies to flow through the federal exchange, then what about the government's defense? What do they have to say for themselves? You know, how can they um, defend this issue of the IRS making this rule? We've had a number of um, uh, petitions and and, um, amicus briefs filed in the Supreme Court. We filed one ourselves on behalf of of the petitioners. But the government's case basically is, oh, well, don't you know what we meant to do? We intended to get to universal coverage, and therefore we must have intended for all of the subsidies to flow, whether or not a state set up its own exchange or not. But that's not what the law says. And if we wind up with a Supreme Court saying, yes, that's fine, administrative agencies can just rewrite the statute in order to to abide by what they perceive to be congressional intent, then we really no longer will be a country governed by the rule of law. It would be governed by the dictates of often politicized administrative agencies. So it's really a very consequential case. It's important in the Obamacare fight, but it's also important in, in the rule of law and really whether or not we we have the um, protection of laws as well as the, um, the opportunities that they propose. So it sounds like the implications of uh, ruling in favor of the federal government would have 
long-reaching effects into our system of government at large, not just in the healthcare issue. But what if the case goes the other way? What if the opposite outcome takes place and the Supreme Court actually sides against the government and rules that the IRS acted illegally in sending out these subsidies? What happens then? Then all of the people in these 37 states that are receiving subsidies through the federal exchanges lose those subsidies. They won't lose their health insurance coverage. The policies will still exist. But for many of them, they're getting substantial subsidies from the taxpayer in order to lower the cost of their premiums. Okay. So and, that, and that, that's really the issue is people possibly losing their, their insurance. So that's one of the issues that we're, we're addressing here from a policy perspective is how can Congress use this as an opportunity to begin to move us toward the right kind of health reform. Right, and the, it sounds so ironic, Grace Marie, that these people would actually lose subsidies not because of the Supreme Court case, but because this is what Obamacare actually says. This is what the law actually says has to happen if people sign up through the federal exchange, right? That's, That's exactly right. And as we know, Hadley, the president has, has changed the law at least two dozen times himself, most without legal authority. And this is one of the major challenges to a significant provision of the law that really says, you know, you just can't go around rewriting a statute passed by Congress under the constitutional system of government that we have here. Wow. So I guess someone, an entity that might actually have the authority to rewrite the laws is Congress itself, right? So what what could Congress do or what should Congress do? How should they respond if the Supreme Court rules against the federal government and those subsidies are stopped? The Congress is actually highly focused on solutions here. And as I said, they see this as really as a potential opportunity. Leader McConnell, Speaker Boehner have appointed uh, task forces to address this issue, to be prepared with solutions should the Supreme Court decide in what I believe is the correct way in siding with the petitioners so that they're ready with legislation. And I think there's just a, there's really a growing general consensus that they don't want the five to six million people who are currently relying on subsidies for their health insurance. They don't want them to suddenly lose their policies. Remember one of the the biggest criticisms of Obamacare was the president's promise that if you like your coverage, you can keep your coverage. Well, people may not like the coverage they have now, but at least it's insurance. And it's very difficult for many of them to afford insurance without these uh, subsidies because the law has made it so much more expensive. I was talking with an insurance agent from Kansas yesterday who said that a policy for a typical 30-year-old is now four times more expensive because of Obamacare. So at least in the short term, people need to have certainty that they can keep that coverage. And I think that extending those subsidies through the end of the year is very likely to happen. I wonder when we get back to this question of the subsidies, if some people wouldn't suggest that, okay, if the Supreme Court rules against the federal government, then the solution should be as lawmakers, maybe as they intended, for all 50 states and Washington, D.C. to establish their own exchanges. So do you think state leaders might be tempted to respond in that way and establish their own exchanges if the Supreme Court rules that the subsidies aren't authorized to go through the federal exchange? Why 
or why not could that be considered a solution? Well, first of all, we've seen the experience of a number of states in trying to set up their own exchanges, and they have, in many cases, gone up in flames. States that were all in with Obamacare, like Oregon and Vermont and Maryland and Hawaii and a number of other states, have not been able to get a their exchanges set up. Massachusetts, which had its own exchange before, can't figure out how to jump through all the hoops to get a federal, get its own state-approved um, health insurance exchange established. Established. So a lot of states may be looking at this option, but it is not going to be anything that can happen quickly, as they have learned from other states that have spent several years and sometimes many tens of millions and even hundreds of millions of dollars in trying to get websites set up and not being able to do it. So states will look at that option. But many of us are arguing that if they were to try to set up a state exchange, then that allows Obamacare to sink even deeper roots. And many of these states are resisting expanding Medicaid. They didn't set up their own exchanges because they object to the way this law has gone about health reform. So they really don't want to buy in, which is why Congress is so actively looking at different options to give them a third choice. And the governors were here in Washington for their annual winter meeting last week, and there were a lot of conversations going on between members of Congress and the governors so that they can begin to shape a policy that new policies and new legislation that will work both for individuals to give them more choices and for the states to begin to offer people many more choices of the kind of insurance that would work for them so they don't have to buy maternity coverage or pediatric dental coverage if they're 62 years old. They don't have to buy alcoholism treatment coverage if they're a Mormon or a Baptist, for example. So they get it that they don't want to buy policies that are so laden with all these benefits that they're not going to use and that they want to have the states create more affordable policies. So it's really several steps. It's making sure that people are able to keep the policies they have through the end of the year, then giving the states more opportunity of giving people more freedom to purchase policies regulated by the states, but allowing subsidies to flow through a new mechanism. My colleague Diana Furchgott-Roth of the Manhattan Institute and I wrote a piece for the New York Times, of all places, about a week ago that explained one of the policy proposals that we explain and that, that we are offering to members of Congress as a solution. Okay. Finally, Grace Marie, I, I want to get back to something that you mentioned earlier in the podcast, and that is that these subsidies that flow through the federal exchange, although the Supreme Court is going to try to determine if they're legal or illegal, they trigger some mandates in the law, the individual mandate for some people and the employer mandate. Can you explain how that works and how many people might be affected by those mandates if they were to change because of the Supreme Court ruling? The mandates really are the issue. That is, that's what's at, what's at stake here with the Supreme Court arguments. And the mandates are triggered in several different ways. And again, apologies for the ridiculous complexity of this law. But if you find that health insurance costs more than 8% of your household income, then you are, you are basically waived from the individual mandate penalty. It doesn't apply to you. 
if the subsidies go away, many more people will see that that health insurance costs more than 8% of their income. So many millions of people would be exempt from the individual mandate simply because the new insurance would be so much more expensive. They could certainly buy policies, and they may, if we, if the states are able to begin to offer policies that are more mandate light, they could probably buy a policy that would be cheaper than the premium they were paying in Obamacare and very likely with lower deductibles. So it's the individual mandate on one side and then the employer mandate on the other. The mandate on employers to provide health insurance really takes two forms. First of all, they have to provide coverage that meets the long list of government-specified mandates, but they also have to make sure that that policy costs the premium costs less than 9.5% of an employee's income. If either one of those tests are not met, and also that the employee goes to the federal exchange for subsidized coverage, then all of the employer's employees are subject to a $2,000 to even $3,000 a person penalty per year. This could cost a company with 100 employees many tens of thousands of dollars every year simply in fines to the federal government for not providing health insurance. People still wouldn't have coverage. They still wouldn't be able to, um, in many cases, buy into the federal exchanges. But then they would have, um, the, the employers would have a significant additional tax, really, that they would have to pay. If there is no exchange in that state, then individuals can't go to the exchange for subsidies, and therefore that hook is not there for the employer mandate to be triggered. So employers are protected because employees can't go to an exchange because there's no exchange there for for them to go to. So it protects individuals from the individual mandate penalty, It protects employers from the employer mandate penalty and really basically frees them up to begin once again hiring, once again doing business in a way that they think suits their customers rather than trying to jump through all of these hoops to avoid these significant costs. As we've heard, many people are losing hours. Companies are not hiring behind the 51st employee because eventually the mandate triggers at 50 employees. So they're restructuring their businesses around this artificial um, threat of this health law and their penalties. This, the third, businesses in those 37 states would be protected from this, and I think it could be a big boost to them economically. Right. Uh, well, in summary, Grace Marie, are there a couple of things, maybe bullet points or important takeaways that you would emphasize for our listeners um, about this case, things for Americans to keep in mind as the oral arguments take place and later on in in the year in the summertime when this ruling comes down, what should we keep in mind about the importance of this case? One of the things that that people have been telling us about about health reform, there's great dissatisfaction with Obamacare, but people want to make sure that the most vulnerable citizens people with pre-existing conditions, people who are in the middle of cancer treatment, 
are taken care of. They've always wanted that. They wanted it before Obamacare. They want it now. So there's a general sense that Congress does need to take action. Congress will take action to make sure that people are protected if the Supreme Court decides the right way. And importantly, this is a really a bridge toward giving us an opportunity for people to begin to choose the kind of policy that works for them. If these, the federal exchange in these 37 states is invalidated, then the individual mandate, the employer mandate go away, and people then have a new freedom to purchase the kind of health insurance that works for them. So this will be an opportunity to both take care of the people who are in the exchanges now, getting subsidies, who need coverage, but for everybody else to also be able to have policies that work for them and their families and free up the health insurance industry to be able to offer much more flexible policies than they are able to do under all of the restrictions and mandates of this health law. So having having confidence that this is really the, the next battle in the fight for freedom, to give people a chance to get the kind of coverage that works for them and their families that will be more affordable with the benefits that they want and need, free employers from the restrictions of these employer mandates, free individuals from many individuals, not all of them, but most, from the penalties and mandates of, of the individual mandate. And I think a lot of people, Hadley, are going to start seeing that as they file their taxes for this year, when they realize they owe more money to the federal government than they thought they did, their refunds, their tax refunds are going to be smaller, they're having to pay tax preparers to help them. There's just such a general dissatisfaction. And I think if people see this as an escape from the first steps in making, taking the first steps toward a freer, more consumer-focused health system, then I think that everyone can see that it would be a win for freedom, it would be a win for our system of government, and it would be a win for consumers to be able to, to choose the kind of policies that they want. Right on. That sounds all very positive, Grace Marie. I know that we have written extensively about this case at the Independent Women's Forum, and our website is iwf.org. We've also been tracking this case and many others uh, that have anything to do with the Affordable Care Act at healthcarelawsuits.org. So those are a couple of resources. Grace Marie, I know you've also written a great deal about this case. Can you just remind our listeners where they can find more of your work? They can visit our website at galen.org, G-A-L-E-N.org, and also our new website, obamacarewatch.org, where not only do we follow this case, but we also have a lot of other information about the implications and repercussions of Obamacare. So both galen.org as well as obamacarewatch.org. We very much invite people to visit us at both sites. Thank you so much, Grace Marie, for being our guest today. I'm Hadley Heath-Manning with the Independent Women's Forum. This has been our podcast. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, please give it a thumbs up, share it on social media, or stop by iwf.org for similar content.